0: Focus on part two here. Perfect. <laughs> oh I got it. Plus, well, I get need a refill. Yeah. And the accountant hasn't said anything at all, so we got a lot of reference and stuff.
1: Story account. Welcome to the Financial Independence Garage, where we share the tools to improve your finances. And we unfold the roadmap to financial independence. Good afternoon. It is the Money Mechanic joining you as always with my buddies, the account and the economist,
2: accountant. Good day. You finally learned that, hey? Or did you just put it on the top of your screen finally? Oh, no. I'm just getting slier at uh, <laughs> having it ready to read.
1: There you, you know go.
3: what I thought? I thought uh, you changed the cadence on that one. I did. It was a little quicker. Yeah. We got to get we got to get into this. We got to get these beers yeah. open, gentlemen. Okay. What are we having? Okay. So
1: today, uh, it is nice warm weather, summertime season. There's lots of fruit additions to beers these days, as there's been for a while. So this is the... Our friendly local brewing, Phillips, brewing a multi company in Victoria. They have a raspberry, a wheat ale. Economist, you want to read the blurb on the can on this
3: one? Since your can's empty and mine's not yet? Sure. Uh, Brewed with BC raspberries, Phillips' raspberry wheat has a big berry aroma with bold juiciness and a medium body that finishes dry and crisp. That's it. Short. How do you feel about fruit beers in general? Hey, I just had an electric napkin incident. (laughs) (laughs) perfect the mouse (laughs) (laughs) that's
1: another that's the electric rodent napkin incident yeah yeah what you guys thought on fruit beers in general yay nay nah no no not a fan eh not a fan what are you about about economist i don't mind it in the summer Mm -hmm. this one's pretty good it's not super sweet some of the fruit beers when the fruit's overpowering that's not my jam right Oh, oh, wow. no, this wow. is
3: pretty this, strong that's a lot fruit. of
2: raspberry now that i'm getting into it it's a, yeah it's, it's like raspberry juice it's yeah it's just slightly carbonated and alcoholic
3: <laughs> <laughs> right
1: <laughs> mm. okay well a note for ourselves for future brewing uh less raspberries
2: in the uh, wheat beer yep. yeah definitely. i think this might be the first time on the show that i'm openly not a fan of the beer we are drinking (laughs) oh there you go well
1: good to know well we do we should shout out to uh who bought us this round though because it was a generously purchased round for us the economist is in charge of all that this one was from i'm getting there (laughs) (laughs) i knew i could tell that i started that he's like you're supposed to remember that oh it's from justin yes up in the interior. Thank you, Justin. We appreciate that. And even though the account is not a fan of the raspberry wheat ale, uh, hey, I still appreciate the beer. Cheers! It's a summer yeah. beer. Cheers! Cheers!
3: Look how pink that is. It's really pink, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it needs to be hotter or something. Or maybe this just isn't a good fruit beer. Well, it is January. Yeah. As usual, we <laughs> have if like. You our say two- that one
2: more time, and leaving. <laughs> <laughs> January. (laughs) Oh, and he's gone. I'm out. (laughs) All
1: right, boys. What are we going to talk about tonight? We actually managed to get somebody else to come on the show and talk with us. So we don't have to run the conversation and pretend we know things. We actually have somebody that does know things. So we're not going to be talking about much. Hopefully, not. Hopefully, we don't have to say much at all. <laughs> we did do a show Perfect. quite a while back about socially responsible investing. And we talked about ESG, which is environmental, social, and, and governance of companies. And we kind of dug into it, but we didn't know a whole lot about it. The Economist, you have mentioned on several shows that it's your thing. You are doing some of this uh, socially responsible investing now. So we have Tim Nash who some of the listeners may know because he runs uh his website, Good Investing, now as a CFP. He also has, he was, or maybe still is, we'll ask him, the Sustainable Economist. And he's an all-around smart guy and he talks a lot. And this is his passion is all about, uh, you know, feel better, do good stocks and do less evil stocks. So we're going to get Tim on the show and pick his brain so we can learn more about it. And also you, the listener, can learn some more about it.
2: Guys, what do you think? I think we should just uh, get get him on here to start talking so you don't have to listen to us anymore. Yeah, (laughs) because even though I do it, I don't know anything about it.
3: (laughs) I don't know if I'm doing it right or wrong or okay. Well, these are
2: some questions we're going to have to ask Tim.
3: We we
1: basically just set this up so the economist can ask Tim some questions. Mm -hmm. Pretty much. Yeah, right on. All right, let's get Tim on the line. All right. Our call went through. We've got Tim Nash joining us on the FI Garage. This is super exciting. Welcome to the show,
0: Tim. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Yeah. What are you drinking? Uh, so I've got here uh, a dear friend of mine. He's also a client sent me a bottle of a uh, single malt scotch from Cape Breton. So nice, nice little 10 year uh, having a little, I think it's uh, a little later here in Ontario than it is uh, in BC. So uh, I'm, I'm hitting a single malt.
1: That's beautiful. Well, ah, there you go. Cheers. Perfect. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers!
0: Absolutely.
1: The account didn't sound super happy with our raspberry wheat, so he's probably a little jealous to be uh, switching to
2: single malt. Yeah, I'll, I'll trade you. <laughs> if that was, if if we could design that technology, that would be great. <laughs> that would solve a lot of my problems.
1: Yes. <laughs> Tim, a lot of our listeners might know who you are, but just in case for the uh, the new people in the fire community out there, just give us sort of your brief background, your introduction, your elevator pitch, and why we want to talk to you about socially responsible investing today.
0: Sure. So, um, you know, I've been in this field for quite a while. Um, my background is that I grew up in London, Ontario, with my dad in the investment industry. So I kind of grew up around stocks and bonds. Uh, I studied economics and philosophy out at Dalhousie in Nova Scotia. And, you know, I was kind of the weirdo in each of those faculties, you know, asking some of the funny questions. And really, as I was going through my economics uh, courses, you know, something always stuck out to me that like, you know, just was off. Something was missing. I kind of describe it as like my spidey sense was tingling. And uh, it wasn't until I did my third year, uh, I went on exchange to New Zealand. My intention was to go there and party and play rugby and like hitchhike around New Zealand, and I ended up having a few things happen that really changed the course of my life. Uh, The first is that I learned about this idea of triple bottom line economics, people, planet, and profit. And I also had kind of like what I'd call a profound spiritual experience, where it just kind of like hit me how badly we were messing up the planet. And just kind of how unsustainable the whole system was. Um, And I went and really, you know, with this idea of of triple bottom line economics, you know, this language around externalities that all these social and environmental issues are just simply external to the profit maximizing equation. So we just ignore them in the whole field of economics. And I went back to my fourth year uh, professors full of questions about this and they didn't have answers for me. Um, so I went to Sweden and I did my master's in sustainability. And that's really where I did the deep dive into this. And I did my thesis looking at this topic of socially responsible investment. Now, as soon as like right away, as soon as I bring up the, you know, socially responsible, sustainable, ethical people automatically assume lower financial returns. Right. Whereas we were finding there's like a business case for sustainability. Like, wait a second, these companies are actually doing better. And so, you know, my thesis was looking at the financial materiality of ESG risks. And so ESG is sort of environmental, social governance, kind of industry speak for sustainability. And we have these ESG risks, but everyone's kind of dismissing them. So we really focused on this financial materiality, how these things are gonna impact the bottom line. Um, It was great. Uh, Got huge accolades on my thesis. It was awesome. Worked with some of the top data providers at that time. Came back to Canada in July of 2008, ready to take the investment world by storm and graduated straight into the crash. Uh, So there were no jobs. Perfect timing. Perfect timing. And sustainability just got thrown on the back burner. Like nobody cared about that. It was like, let's fix the economy first. So, you know, really there were no jobs for me. So, you know, that's when I started my own business and, you know, I've been through several iterations and, you know, I started trying to work with the big foundations and endowments and pensions, those institutional investors that didn't work so well. So, you know, I, I got a side gig teaching, Uh, economics at a local college and I started my blog. Uh, I called myself the sustainable economist and I just started writing about this stuff and I created some model portfolios and it was really cool. And people just started reaching out saying, Tim, how do I do this? And that's when I realized that most people who care about sustainability know nothing about personal finance. So that's when I kind of real, okay, like back to square one, wait a second, let's teach people about personal finance uh, I got my CFP designation, and I'm now a financial planner. And I have this fee-for-service business model where I'm not like a broker or money manager. Instead, I'm more like a coach or a consultant, and I teach people how to invest according to their values um, with an obvious focus on DIY, but in these sort of socially responsible, green, sustainable ETFs.
1: Yeah, that's that's just perfect. I like the way you've sort of melded the two together there. You mentioned that the the finance part of the equation and then bringing in your knowledge and your background with the socially responsible. It's pretty cool. And I think you spoke perfectly. The end there is the listeners that we have in general are already DIY or want to be DIY. Many of them are, index, global index investors. So that's kind of one of the, some of the things we want to jump into right away here. And you brought up your model portfolios, you built those a while back, and this is on your sustainable investor blog. And they're still there because I went and and dug through them a little bit, but just run us through what you had in there and what your thoughts are on those going forward. We always think of being
0: globally diversified with our index funds. What does that look like with your portfolios? Yeah. So, I mean, really I'm super inspired by the couch potato model. Like to me, that makes so much sense. Uh, broad diversification, you know, really figure out your risk tolerance and then be as d- diversified as you can. But when I looked up those traditional couch potato ETFs, there is just crap in there that I do not want to own. And, <laughs> yep. you know, it just like, and it, I have a very visceral reaction when I see the companies in there that like, I don't want to own that stuff, I'll do my best not to swear, although maybe I'm allowed to swear here, I'm not sure. Yeah, Um, you're We're in the garage, like, I don't (laughs) wanna own that shit. Like straight up, (laughs) like that's just, you know, there's there's a bunch of stuff in there that to me, it's just messed up. So, you know, really from when I started this exercise, the idea was to be as diversified as possible, given my ethical constraints. Right, right. So those first model portfolios I built, the first one was, was the organic couch potato portfolio. And when I built that, you know, that was probably in 2012, 2013, the first iteration of that. And there weren't ETFs for everything. I had to rely on mutual funds. Right. Uh, from there, the ETF start, market started to grow, but it was in US dollars. So I had to like new US dollars and then I'd have to explain Norbert's Gambit and like all <laughs> this. Right. And then so, you know, really over the last few years, my prayers have been answered because now we have a swath of different uh, socially responsible ETFs. And so to me, it's really you know understand, I want people to understand there's a broad spectrum of options, everything from like a small step in the right direction. And that might be like the Vanguard, like there's like, you know, uh, uh, they have two, they are in US dollars, but those are like super cheap and super diversified. They're just really getting rid of the worst of the worst companies, right? And that would be like a small step in the right direction, but really like tracks so closely to the standard index all the way through to, you know, I do have my like squeaky clean portfolio, which is like, you know, this is now all of a sudden not nearly as diversified as somebody would, you know, typically want it to be, but goes really far in terms of like, it doesn't even have banks. Investing in fossil fuels, like not only is it bank or like no fossil fuels, no oil and gas and pipeline, but like, you know, it's more like insurance companies and credit card companies, financial transactions or like data providers like SMD and MSCI. That's the financials component. You're not going to get the RBC, TD, Bank of America Wells Fargo, right. Just so that, you know, there's this wide range of different options there. Um, You know, really, it was like divesting from fossil fuels was such a pain back in the day because these didn't have that divestment. They were more religious, like socially responsible, like getting rid of sin sectors. So I had to one of my model portfolios. I think it's got like 15 slices in there, but that's because I couldn't like I couldn't do it any other way. Instead of doing it geography, Canada, U.S., rest of the world, I did global sector by sector. And that allowed me to like pull out specific sectors yeah, I looked at that, that one. It's like, I was like a thumbs down. Yeah, there's a lot of ETFs in that yeah. one. I did look at that Because it's one. every yeah. sector. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. that yeah. was instead of dividing the pie by geography, I couldn't divest that way. So I had to do it global sector by global sector. So now they're just such easier options. Like, you know, there are iShares has fossil fuel free ETFs. Um, you know, there are all in one ETFs that are available, you know, so really it's like, you know, the I think the organic catch potato I've got in there is gonna be the sort of iShares ESG advanced, which is, you know, pretty good, not a hundred percent. It's still got banks in there. It's still got mining companies, but you know, it does pretty good in terms of the negative screens and the ESG uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, analysis. And then, you know, and, and th- what's cool is that they've now even come up with like those all-in-one asset allocation ETFs such that you can now buy like GEQT, like instead of VEQT or XEQT, there's GEQT, which has those all together. Okay, good.
1: That's news to me because obviously one of the questions I want to ask you is how come there isn't an all-in-one like VEQT? And lo and behold, there is. I haven't even been looking. There are two. There's two. BMO BMO has one as well. Okay. So BMO and Vanguard. Now, The Economist, you went around and picked some ETFs last year. Why don't you tell us about what you picked and, and Tim's thoughts
3: on that? Yeah, well, it was 2019, I guess. And I spent a few days on it, maybe a few weeks. (laughs) (laughs) good you should i didn't get anywhere because all i kept uh, getting was to being frustrated Mm -hmm. right because everything i found like you said had shit that didn't seem like it is what i was looking for yeah um and then when i found like the desjardins uh fossil fuel free it was really expensive
0: yeah that one's got a high mer
3: yeah so i ended up with uh iShares and it's the XSUS and XESG, XENSM, yeah. I think. Okay.
0: Yeah. So I think those are like the, the the they're called I, uh, ESG aware ETFs. It's okay. so my understanding that that's the, and this is the, but this is like the right. The kind spectrum. Of you want to go. Yeah. It, it's like a baby step. Yeah. That's well, what it sounds I mean, it's, like. It's more than a baby step. Okay. Like it is like, it's awesome. It's way better. Um, you know, in my mind, then just that you're getting rid of, you know, most of the worst of the worst, it's not going to be fossil fuel free, right? Which matters for some people and doesn't matter for other people. Like, I want to be clear here. I'm not here to prescribe what someone should do. Right. So it's really, you know, that often is kind of like a deal breaker one way or the other, but those ETFs are designed to track the standard benchmarks within a very tight margin. Okay. Right. Okay. Right. So if your goal is to earn those market rates of return, which for most fire people for that's that's like the primary goal, you know, then that, those are the best options for that. And you're probably getting rid of like 85% of the crap. Right. Okay. Right. And, but it's designed to stay, to to tra- have a very specific tracking error. As you go past that point, that kind of like tracking to the broad index starts to fall in priority. Right, Right, right. where now all of a sudden they're prioritizing ESG or they're prioritizing sector, you know, deviations that, and that, you know, it'll still track pretty close. But, you know, it is it is expected to deviate. And whether it's better or whether it's worse, like I get into my theory about why I think it might be better. Certainly, there are a lot of folks who say when it comes to sustainable investing that it, future expected returns should be a little bit lower. And then, you know, and and really to me, it's like, you know, flip a coin when it comes to this, the you know, whether it is or not. Yeah. So why do you think that
1: future expected returns may be lower for ESG is because we had the big run before the election and there was all the talk about, you know, green tech, green, everything, or?
0: So I want to differentiate between two different strategies, doing less evil versus doing more good. Because, you know, so far we've been talking about ESG and sort of doing less evil, like broad, ETFs. And now you're kind of introducing this idea of clean tech and green stuff, which I'm happy to go there as well. But that by definition is active management. Like Fair. we are picking and choosing specific sectors or themes. And that, yes, those are subject to, you know, they're not as diversified, the valuations. And we did see a green pop when Biden got elected. And and, and then when he actually got inaugurated, it came down like 30%. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, so this is to me, classic, like buy the rumor, sell the news. And for anyone who bought, and of course, it's like, you know, three ETF companies in Canada launch green energy ETFs right at the top, <laughs> right? So anyone when I'm like, yay, finally, there's one in Canadian dollars, Like, buy this. And then it's like down through, right? <laughs> so it's just like, but that's always going to be, you know, deviated there. When it comes to the doing less evil in the ESG piece, you know, really the fundamental change theory, the impact that I'm trying to have as a sustainable investor is hoping that as more investors invest in companies with better ESG scores, they're going to have more access to capital. And their cost of capital is going to be lower, meaning that they can raise money through shares or debt cheaper because there's demand for their shares and their debt. Whereas we've seen this where companies, for example, in fossil fuels, right, are having a hard time raising money right now where they wanted to go out and, and raise shares and, you know, sell bonds, their cost of capital is going to be a lot higher because they're sort of out of fashion for carbon footprint reasons. Right. Right. <laughs> this means is that, you know, we're not going to get as many fossil fuel projects. It's more expensive. We're going to get more renewable energy projects because it's cheaper. But from an investment standpoint, if I'm trying to maximize returns, right? Well, if the company has a lower cost of capital, if they're, you know, that means I'm getting a lower long-term return. And if there is this ESG premium, if it's not based on fundamentals, if it's just based on sentiment, right, that, that you know that then then yeah, ESGs are going to be at a premium, which means that your long-term expected returns are going to be lower.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Now, what that whole thesis ignores is this idea of externalities. They're assuming that the market has priced in everything and that the market knows everything and it's perfectly efficient. And that climate change is accurately priced, and you know when companies are paying really low wages and they have turnover, and you know, and that could be a problem. That that's already priced, you know, and that, that I just I don't think that's true. I think that the traditional financial industry does not know how to price these ESG issues, hmm. and so again, you know, my thesis is that there is this bottom line benefit. The companies that are leaders are more profitable, and as society through government regulation and as investors uh, continue to price in those externalities, a uh, price on carbon and, you know, right, raising minimum wage and actual benefits. And like, like imagine if Uber had to, you know, it wasn't contractors, like they actually had to pay good wages to people. What would that do to their business model, right? Mm-hmm. That to me, it's like, wait a minute, the companies that are ahead of the curve on this, um, that they're actually poised for more profitability given that sort of economic shift. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I recognize that like, I don't know what the hell's going to happen. I don't have the crystal ball. <laughs> I've been doing this for 12. If you had asked me 12 years ago, I was like, oh my God, everyone like climate change. It's going to, people are going to start caring about this. Like right away, this is a huge issue. And it took like over a decade yep. to get to where we are right now, which yep. now things are moving. But my goodness, that was a really hard decade for me. For sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Waiting for the, that change to, to occur.
3: Economist, you wanted to jump in a little earlier. Yeah, I did, uh, but I'm going to just stick on on this path right now and your theory here. Sure. You know, an alternative theory that I've considered is okay. Coal, for instance, the whole industry's on sale in the stock market, right? But generally, they're still producing strong income. So it, it, you know, if they have a 25 year time horizon. And their stock's on sale, but they're going to generate this income. It's still, you know, not a good buy for me necessarily, but the returns seem like they could be there. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah. So two things. So now you're talking about timing and trading rather than investing, right? Sure. You have to do the math of now and do that assessment. And then you also have to decide when you're going to sell, right? And at what point, and you have to be evaluating that, you know, right? So let's be clear that right away what you're talking about is less of a passive approach there. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, you know, the way that I look at that is to say that coal has significant risks that I don't know if they're priced in. You're telling me these coal companies are cheap and I understand that based on, you know, potentially free cash flow. right? But like if countries are serious about their climate change targets, and this is really what it comes down to, is that like, if we're honestly like honest to goodness, serious about our climate change targets, the pace of change that needs to occur to meet those targets and to, you know, avert the worst case climate catastrophe is like seriously quick. And if that happens, they're not going to have a 25 year horizon. Right. And that their assets, whatever's on their balance sheet, you know, could become stranded assets and that could get written off. Yeah, And if we have like legit, if we just like made them pay the appropriate price on carbon and made them pay for the like cleanup site yeah. of the coal mine and all those different natural assets that, you know, they probably don't have cash aside for that. That to me, it's like you can do the free cash flow analysis and, you know, that makes sense in these pieback periods and hey, they could, you know, pay for their whole market cap, you know, within a few years with their free cash flow. But again, that assumes that we're not properly pricing in those externalities, whereas as soon as we do that economic changes quite quickly. And, you know, is it properly valued now or not? Like, I don't know, but I would just say that there's a huge risk there that, you know, just like everything else in the market, you have to take risk to get those higher returns. And, you know, oil investors over the last, you know, year to date, like since January, right? Like there, and all of a sudden, you know, people, it's like booming again. And it's like, great. Okay. But like, what risk are you taking there? hmm and of course, like if there's one thing we've seen with the oil market, like it's been a story of boom and bust for how many decades. So this means if you've participated in the boom, like congratulations, if you made money, hey, you know, that was a good trade. Oil was undervalued for quite a while there. Congratulations. But like going forward, you know, is it going to keep booming? Is it going to bust? You know, I don't know. But if we do follow the, the, the most, you know, I would say comprehensive climate change scenarios, that like, if we're serious about this stuff, like it really has to happen quickly.
3: Yeah. Right on. So what I was thinking of earlier, um, I just want to jump back to what you called. Uh, wait,
1: I wanted it, to jump in on what we were just talking about. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Can you wait? Can you hold your jump back yeah. till I jump yeah. in? Because I just wanted to add on a, a, just an end to this kind of like what we were talking about with um companies that exist that are in the fossil fuel market. And one of the thoughts that has occurred to me is because we're seeing a lot of transition from some of those companies that were primarily fossil fuel in the past, and Mm -hmm. we, we saw them got hammered in the market. So if you did pick up a great bargain, and that company is is actively transitioning to a non-fossil fuel renewable energy market, then that's something to consider. You may not choose them for your ESG portfolio two years ago, but maybe forward-looking that you do want to have them. And I, so I'm just, what your thoughts on excluding a lot of things when they're actually in a process of transition?
0: Yeah, I mean, so, and this is, again, going to be a matter of taste. Yeah right? That some people are going to be just fine owning shares of ExxonMobil and that's cool. And, you know, shareholder engagement and activism is a very real thing. Like Exxon just had three board members get ousted and, you know, these three new board members, um, you know, some people just aren't going to want to. So this is why it's like, you know, I really talk about three sort of doing less evil strategies. Yep. There's like the negative screening, which is like the hard, no, not one penny. Yep. There's the ESG, which is like okay, which companies are transitioning? Which ones are best positioned? Let's measure that. Let's assess that, and let's you know skew towards the you know the ones that are ahead of the curve on these issues. Um, and then there's the shareholder engagement which is like, okay, if we're going to own companies that are maybe like thumb sideways, like it's not a hard no, but like, I don't feel great about it. Then let's make sure that we are our, you know, our proxy voting guidelines, like our shares are pushing these companies to, in a more sustainable direction.
2: Perfect. Um,
0: So those are all really valid, you know, approaches in terms of like, kind of, you know, nudging the economy in the stock market Mm -hmm. towards sustainability. It's just that in these traditional index funds, they're not doing any of those three approaches. Right. 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 Which is like, hey, like if we can get pretty much the same thing for pretty much the same cost,
2: why not?
1: Right. Okay. well, we'll let the economist jump back in and then we'll wake up
3: the accountant because he's got to ask some questions. (laughs)
2: You guys have cut me off every time I wanted to ask one.
3: (laughs) Sometimes it works out that way. So I I just wanted to jump back when you called uh, my iShares ETFs ESG aware. I think that's right. I don't know for yeah. sure. You said it was X S U S. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's the ESG aware. That's right.
3: So my question is the GEQT, is yes. that also aware or is that a step forward? That's advanced. And then uh, kind of in the same line, I, I once heard you say that, you know, the best thing that uh, uh, somebody with a six-figure portfolio can do for the environment is divest entirely of fossil fuels. Do you think that's still the case? And- so, okay, so the all-in-one is the ESG advanced
0: methodology. To make matters confusing, iShares launched a third group, which is <laughs> ESG leaders. So I would kind of do ESG aware, ESG leaders, ESG advanced, if I had to put them on a spectrum. And the, the all-in-one, they only have the all-in-one option, which is the ESG advanced. Yeah. And then, you know, no, I mean, in terms of having the biggest impact, I think as it relates to climate change, you know, if that's your mission, right, then definitely your investment portfolio is, if you have a million dollars, is the biggest contributor to your personal carbon footprint so you know there has been a study that's been done looking at things and you know i really want to be clear here this is you know this is not a silver bullet this isn't going to magically solve everything i want people doing all of these actions but if you're someone who's already like eating less meat and you're not flying you're like traveling locally and you ditched your internal combustion engine you're riding your bike or have an electric car using right like if you've done all those things. Mm. So lower, <laughs> oh, guys, I think I'm, I'm failing on a few points there, <laughs> the, but like the, or even like reduce those things. Right. I'm not saying you necessarily have to get rid of them, but even if you did take it to the extreme and got rid of all those things, but you still had a million dollars invested in, you know, standard global ETFs. Um, the carbon footprint from your portfolio is higher than all of those things combined. Like by far, it's <laughs> higher than all of those things combined at hundred K in equities the math they did is 100% equities and they did it 50 50 Canadian equities global equities and obviously Canadian equities are very co2 intensive just because the makeup of the tsx yeah so if you have that severe home bias and it's a 50 50 split every 100k in equities that you have is the carbon footprint like basically of like all those other small things that you could do to to have that impact wow right yeah Hmm. So, you know, really, if, but everyone has different impact, you know, for a lot of people's climate change, that's certainly one of my top priorities. But, you know, there are things like, you know, we can get into like some of the doing more good with like impact investments and like community bonds and green bonds. And like any of the stuff we're talking about with the stock market, it is secondary markets, like you're buying those shares from another investor. So it's always going to be this sort of indirect impact. Whereas, you know, in all of my model portfolios, I do carve out, usually I put it at like 10% for impact investments. And these are going to be the things, you know, super crunchy granola, you know, for you guys in BC, it'd be like, you know, investing in a uh, a solar co-op. Or, you know, there's a really cool product there, Riza Capital, which is like BC social enterprises, and you can invest in, in those. So it's kind of like startups in the social enterprise economy. But like, you know, uh, uh, here in Ontario, we've had uh, solar bonds and we've had things like there's a nonprofit here in Toronto that offers arts programming to homeless youth. And so they bought their space using community bonds. They raised like two million dollars. From the community, they now own their space. They're not going anywhere. They don't have to worry about rising rent. So, you know, in terms of having that positive impact, there's always going to be the like doing more good that is that direct positive thing. But if someone is looking to really, you know, reduce their personal carbon footprint, you know, they have to be looking at their investment portfolio. Tim, have you bought trees with me yet? World Tree? No, oh, World Tree. I own trees. I own trees. I bought trees. You bought World Tree? Yeah. Oh, man, I wish it was harvest this year. Lumber prices are like through the roof. (laughs) Like if you time that to to like 10 years ago. (laughs) No kidding. Yeah. Well, anyway, so
1: I'm in World Tree. We've talked about on the show before. You you set us up for some awesome segues for part two here after we go to the beer fridge for beer, because I know the accountant wants to ask about individual stocks in Canada and you brought up banking. So we do want to talk about that as well. We want to get into a little bit of greenwashing as well. So there's lots more to keep going with here. We're just going to run to the beer fridge grab another beer and be right back hey accountant yeah you're finally gonna let me talk well i'm gonna let you talk but you weren't a super huge fan of the um the phillips raspberry weed ale that justin bought us did you grab another beer from the fridge this week
2: are you still sipping away on that one i'm still sipping away on this one because uh it's not great (laughs) it's hard to get down it's not well, easy. <laughs> I found a bonus beer. I didn't even
1: buy this. It just ended up in my fridge. It's uh red. Oh, the Red Truck. Red Truck Classic Lager. Now, if uh, Robinson Smith's listening, he'll be shouting at his uh, headphones, going, Why is that not the. IPA because he is a red truck beer fan. So sorry, this was just left in the fridge and I'm having it. So let's get back <laughs> into part two here
2: and the account you get to lead us off because you've been awfully quiet. So I have kind of a two part question. The the first part I want to follow up on something that you mentioned earlier is what are your thoughts on the Canadian banks? Because sure. obviously the Canadian banks finance a lot of Canadian companies and it. a lot of Canadian companies are oil Mineral extraction, yeah. not great environmental companies. Yeah. So, yeah, I just kind of wanted to get your opinion on that. Sure. So,
0: uh, you know, the Canadian banks are so tricky. And again, this is very much going to be a personal decision. So, each person is going to have their own opinion of, you know, what this means and what that should be. Uh, I think I get the sense you're asking me my opinion. So, I'm happy to share that. But again, want to be clear that when it comes to these ethical issues, like it's a gray area. And that, yeah. you know, all of are entitled. Um, my personal view is that they're a no-go for me, um, really for two reasons. Number one is that um, there is a group called the Rainforest Action Network, RAN, that does a study every year, and it's I think it's called Banking on Climate. And they look at the financial institutions that loan the most amount to fossil fuel companies around the world, i.e. which banks have the highest exposure to carbon risk. And right. all of the Canadian banks feature prominently. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah. 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 So they're just like right up there. And, you know, and so, you know, that's number one. And then for me, it's like, I'll be honest that, you know, and this one I'm torn with because it's my economist brain versus my kind of ethical heart that there's such oligopolies here, yeah. right? That like on the one hand, that's like, it's a moat and it's just this path to these like fat profits Yeah. on the other side, like I can't fucking stand bank practices in Canada around mutual funds and account creation. Yeah. And like, it's bullshit. And that I, with my business and like my career, like I've, you know, made a point that like, I do not want to participate in that, you know, frankly, gouging uh, a part of the Canadian financial system. And because I don't think it's the best option for people, You know, to me, I feel weird just being like, I'm gonna profit from that,
3: Mm -hmm.
0: you know, and that I'm just gonna earn that. So that's a very personal thing for me as well. Yeah. You know, I definitely have a bit of a chip on my shoulder graduating into this industry when I did and, like, going into a lot of those buildings and having those conversations about ESG and sustainability early on and, you know, kind of getting lapped out of the room where, you know, they're just not there. So, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a challenge. I think each person has to kind of figure that out on their own. Um, to me, it's it's a no-go. Like, I sort of go out of my way to avoid that. Um, But, you know, a lot of people love the Canadian banks and, you know, I have no sort of qualm if people are going to be putting their money there, you know, it frankly could be a pretty good investment. But if I am right about this carbon risk and this carbon bubble and, you know, if they are going to draw down quite a bit, you know, it wouldn't shock me that as these companies start to disclose, there's this thing called the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. Yes. Uh, TCFD is, I think, the awkward acronym where it's like, now it's like, guess what? They have to disclose their financial disclosures on climate-related risks. Like, it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, some of the luster starts to come off, assuming that you know, they're not taking the appropriate steps that they remain such heavy investors in fossil fuels.
3: You talked about them in general there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> time out. Time out. Economists, you got to get in that this is for entertainment
3: purposes only. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's the
1: opinion of all of us here having <laughs> our discussion. It was time to drop that in. Absolutely.
3: Absolutely. So you talked about the banks in general. And sorry, uh, what was the yeah. the ranking?
0: Uh, so it's ran. I could find a link for you, but okay. R A N. I think it's ran.org. And I believe it's called Banking on Climate.
1: Tim, all you have to do is tell them it'll be in the show notes. Yeah. Because that's there, And then yeah. I
3: have to find it. I don't have to do the show notes. They do. <laughs> so I guess my question was, okay, if you, you wanted to p- have a bank in your portfolio, is there one in Canada that's better yeah. than the others? And I know there's the big five <sighs> and there's Laurentian. Or would you just go to the list or... I would
0: just go to the list. That's what I've done in the past. Uh, For a little while, I remember it was TD. They were at the bottom of the list. And I honestly, to honest to goodness, thought that TD was like going green (laughs) and was like doing, they were like so close. Like it was like there within their grasp. And like, it was just like, they so could have been the leader in this space. And then they just didn't. And now I see them climbing up that list again. Um, So, you know, to me, it's like, I would probably do the list, but prorated for the market cap. To be like out of them, you know, which has the highest percentage uh, exposure, you know, or the lowest percentage, I guess, in this case, and that, you know, if I'm able to go a little outside the box, I would say, you know, in my experience, National Bank has been, you know, less likely to be as invested in those I don't think that they're you know, I wouldn't consider them a leader in this at all. But, you know, if, if I'm able to go a little like beyond the big five or whatever, you know, I think is number six, that would be theirs. Um, full disclosure, that is uh, where my dad has his firm. So, you know, it's not, I don't think I'm biased in saying that, but like, you know, I definitely, you know, probably know that firm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but like, honestly, they're all like, from a policy standpoint and from an ESG
2: standpoint, Uh, I would argue that they are quite similar at this moment in time. Thanks. Yeah, I'm in the unfortunate position of I love owning them and I hate banking with them. (laughs) (laughs) You tried dealing with the big banks lately? Its service is absolute garbage. But this is, I have this problem with like points, credit
0: cards, you know, like the whole like, you know, we're like they get it from the the local business, trying to support these local businesses, but I'm collecting my points. So it's just there's, you know, it really is this, you know, in so many ways, the system is rigged. Um, And, you know, when we do talk about systemic sort of discrimination against the poor you know like i think canada can really be sort of broken up into people that are like earning dividends from the banks and the people who are like paying overdraft fees to the yeah. banks yeah an accountant that's
1: one of the things that we wanted to get into a little bit is about we love owning our dividend stocks and we've got listeners that love owning their dividend stocks and of course we want to hold canadian ones right account so
2: what are your what was your question you were gonna ask about that uh, well, I didn't ever have my second follow-up question. Which is why, mm. Sorry, ah, go, why go it's into been your second for me because you guys keep <laughs> killing me.
1: It's because uh, you don't interrupt like the Economist does. Well, I'm trying to be polite. <laughs> this is <laughs> not this unlike <laughs> <Yeah>. real life.
2: <laughs> so I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna play a little bit of devil's advocate here and say we've just printed trillions of dollars on money globally. Everyone is calling for inflation. We're seeing some real inflation we're starting to see it hit. Sure. The Canadian market being commodity based and like mm-hmm. we said with lumber prices and all of that. Do you have any worry that you could miss out in an ESG portfolio of that rising commodity prices because you're not in those stocks? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean 100%. This is one of the trade-offs. If you go far enough down that line, yeah, you're going to have higher exposure to tech lower exposure to certainly energy, likely materials, likely utilities, right? Yeah. So, you know, this is this is the difference between that whatever ESG aware and ESG advanced are those sector breakdowns, you know, and, and that exposure. Now, it's been good to us for the last five years, 10 years, right? right. Having a tech skew. Like oh my god, and like not like divesting back before like 2014, twenty fourteen, like that first oil crash, right? I guess yeah. it wasn't the first, but like the first one of that <laughs> decade mud, yeah.
2: kind of thing. Yeah, exactly <laughs> of that decade.
0: <laughs> um, that like you know such that it's really um, you know that that is a I think a, a not a concern for people, but you know you need to accept that as you go further down that line, there are these trade offs, right? And inevitably, that is one of the trade offs. Now, personally, for me, I'll be honest that I have a bias. I don't like commodities. I don't like commodities. This would be the one, like your concerns about inflation. This would be like the one time in a cycle where I'd be like, okay, like I get it. That makes sense. But to me, commodities are just, you know, they're abundant and they're substitutable, such that if prices go up substantially, like we're going to figure out substitutes and we're going to find more of it. Like the market is really, really good at that. Such that, you know, when I look at long-term charts of commodities, you know, like it's not, you know, the commodities themselves are not necessarily the best long-term investments, Um, you know. And that that to me, it's like I, uh, uh, you know, everything that I'm doing is kind of this assumption that capitalism endures. Like there is a segment of my audience that is just like capitalism is broken. uh, Capitalism is unsustainable like we're going to have a crash soon. Yep, right? But it's about understanding that like really what I'm talking about and what we're talking about with this this investment is this notion that like capitalism is going to endure in some form, yeah. In some form, yeah. Right? Yeah. And so to me it's just understanding, you know, what does that look like? What could be But again, you know, this fear about inflation to me it's a little bit more trading and trying to time things. Um, You know, I uh, my feeling is that there is latent demand right now because of COVID, that as we get out of COVID, like, oh, my God, the number of people that want to go on vacation, like the number of haircuts, like I haven't been able to get a haircut in Toronto. (laughs) Well, look at the economist. The the price of haircuts is going to like skyrocket (laughs) for like a specific period of time until that latent demand peters out. Right. And with the whole like work from home and the whole like the economy has shifted so much in the last year and a half and we just don't know where it's gonna land. And I think that there could be these short-term supply crunches. This is why I'll never like short oil because like straight up, <laughs> we could be going towards yeah. uh, a supply crunch and just like, ah, oh, demand recovers and it's wrong, whatever. But for me, it's really looking at this from a decades long perspective that you know, if we continue to use I mean, again, it's like fossil fuels, but really when we look at a bunch of different commodities, you know, when I do look at it over the longer term, like I'm okay, sort of having less exposure to that within a long-term portfolio, but I recognize not everybody is going to feel that way. Right. Right. And that to me, it's like there are other hedges. If you're really worried about inflation, Yeah, you know, there are other ways to do it. And I would argue like global stocks, like as long as you are properly diversified, is like a pretty darn good hedge against inflation. Um, You know, if we get into hyperinflation and we get into like things get out of control, then all bets are off. Oh, totally. Yeah. Accountant. We
1: want to make sure you're happy and finished for this yes. part. Yes, No, you can carry on now. <laughs> Oh, okay, thank you, thank you. Uh, I, I just wanted to keep going a little bit down the line. Is And the only reason I want to keep going this way a little bit is because I did have a little conversation with one of our listeners who wanted to build an ESG-focused portfolio, but by using... Canadian dividend stocks. Now, this may sound ridiculous, because Mm. we know a lot of the big dividend payers in Canada are somehow involved with fossil fuels, or they're the banks that support fossil fuels, or they're um, transporting Mm -hmm. fossil (laughs) fuels, fuels or they're transporting (laughs) fossil fuels. Maybe just, we don't need to go deep down into this, Tim, but just your thoughts. Cause I know you're like, this yeah. is what you do. You do the yeah. coaching part oh, of it and the goodness, training. Yes. And if, if I come to you and say, Hey, I want to build, I, I want some dividend income. Sure. I want individual stocks. I don't want sure. banks, obviously, like you said, but give me, give me some pointers
0: here. Yeah. So, and I mean, my first part of this conversation would be like, why do you want dividends? You know, just (laughs) understanding that like, to me, it's like growth like I'd want, you know, the rationale, but assuming that that's just like what you're going with and that's your strategy. And I'm not going to talk you out of that at all. um, You know, then really what it comes down to is like, uh, I have some great options for you. They were much better options about three years ago. Okay. Um, So really what it comes down to is there are a number of Canadian energy utilities, renewable energy utilities uh, that are traded on the TSX eligible for the Canadian dividend tax credit. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh really at the top, the sort of blue chip one would be Brookfield Renewable Energy yep. Partners if you're paying any attention to this space. They know Brookfield Renewable yep. Like my yep. god, but they did all of these kind of like Biden, you know, it was sort of buy the news on Biden and or yep. sort of buy the rumor, sell the news, so, you know, but because they've all crushed it for the most part, their dividend yields are a lot lower than they were. Yes. That, you know, when I was talking about this three, four years ago, I could get, you know, five and a half percent, six percent. You're not getting that these days. No. Um, the other ones would be the pure plays would be um, uh, Interjects and borelex. Yep. Fair right. Uh, there would be some micro caps. Like there are some smaller that more on the royalty side of things. So there's one like RE royalties. If you understand that model from sort of the commodity space where yeah. you don't own the but you get the royalties, right? So there would be some plays there, you know, specifically that, that, and this to me is what really gets to me because here in Canada, we are so good at funding these commodities projects, which are long-term, right? Right, Require capital investment upfront, need stability and generate stable returns. And when I look at these long-term infrastructure investments in, you know, energy efficiency, Renewable energy, water infrastructure, like all these things, you know, there's such an opportunity for the Canadian financial industry yep. to play a role here. Um, if you wanted to go a little further, like if you it didn't have to be pure play, you're okay with some natural gas. That's when you get into the Algonquin, um, the the Northland Power. Yep. you know there uh, there's like you know, and then for me, obviously, what I'm looking at is their pie chart of their assets and how much natural gas plays into that that those aren't going to be fossil fuel free, but you know, they're going to be, if they're like 60%, but like something like TransAlta renewables, you know, I think it's like two, about two thirds wind, a third nat gas in Australia. So, you know, it depends how far you're going to want to go there. And then there would be some, you know, just like, uh, uh, um, you know, in the the infrastructure side of things as well. One that I like is WSP Global, you know, where they do some really cool, you know, sustainable infrastructure projects. They operate more like, a a a european company yeah some of these quebecois companies you know they're very much on top of that so you know there are options um there's an etf that i track uh it's in us dollars um but it uh it used to be ylco now i think it's rnrg I'm just laughing because the account's just like his eyes are like going over like this. He's like, there's so many
1: things to put in the show notes.
3: <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, this is oh awesome. Oh my goodness. No, it's good. But yeah, R-N-R-G. It's and it's got all the Canadian ones in there. But if you look at the holdings there. Right. This is how I data mine: is I look okay. at these thematic ETFs. Okay. Yeah. 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 And then I would just look at those holdings. Perfect. And so, you know, this one is a U.S. dollar; it is a global fund, but a lot of the names inside of RNRG are in Canadian dollars, and those great. are the ones that you can just like, okay, let me plug those into Morningstar.
2: Yeah. Again, cherry pick whatever. those out. You got it. Perfect. Um, That's so a that great That would be resource. my approach there. Great. Resource. Okay. I've got another one for you. Please. Is how. Do you, when you're doing your research, I know companies are getting really good at greenwashing things and (laughs) hiding the garbage things that they do under the surface and making it look like they're doing good on the surface. Yeah. How do you kind of navigate those waters?
0: Yeah. So the first thing I do is I turn on my bullshit detector. (laughs) (laughs) Set it to 11. (laughs) I pour myself a stiff (laughs) drink because I realize what I'm about to dive into. (laughs) Um, You know, but really what it comes down to is, you know, you can rely, there are certain databases. um, So Sustainalytics is one MSCI is another one where I can get these high level ESG scores. Right. And that's going to at least give me a ballpark, like before I dive in that that's going to say me, okay, where are they relative to their peers? And like, you know, ballpark, how are they at there from there, you know, really for me, most companies have like a sustainability or an ESG or a CSR report. And that really it's like, is that a brochure? Yeah. Or is it, is it a financial statement? Yeah. Like a risk analysis. And, you know, there's a big gap between those. And that you can tell when they're talking about community investment and like volunteer hours and like there's shiny pictures of kids holding a flower, you know, that like you can tell pretty easily that this is a PR exercise, that this is the communications department that is using really, you know, poor data to do storytelling. And that's the worst greenwashing. The things that I... I look for are going to be, you know, these reporting standards. So there's something called the Global Reporting Initiative, GRI, which is, you know, the standard way to disclose ESG and do these reports. So it should be in the appendix and you can like can command F like GRI. Um, you know, uh, when it comes to uh, climate change, I'm looking for something called the CDP Climate Disclosure Project. This is a nonprofit that has standardized climate disclosures. companies so if the company is disclosing according to cdp guidelines then i know that this is apples to apples that i can look at scope one scope two scope three like there's a whole language to this this is a full like you know they don't teach this in you know the cfa uh programs anymore you know or there might be a little bit but you know but it really is closer to you know financial reporting looking at balance sheets and income statements and that data And like in a dream world, like this was my thesis, like 12 years ago, if I was like, like the dream thing that I'm looking for from a company is like a a, a medium term goal, or like it can be a long term goal, but like with roadmaps, interim, you know, targets, and then, you know, really measuring year by year, their progress towards that goal. You know what I mean? Like that to me is the highest standard in the same way that a company would set revenue guidelines and assumptions and then would report, you know, quarter by quarter how they're doing on those revenue guidelines. You know, that's what I want to see when it comes to carbon emissions, when it comes to water use, when it comes to diversity and inclusion within their board of directors and their workforce. You know, I don't expect companies to be perfect right now, but I expect them to like have a vision of where they're going and then be measuring their progress on their way towards that vision. That makes sense. I'm speaking his language yeah, there, I think. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. He's taking
2: it. I I find it really frustrating because I spend way too much time looking at financial statements and not always for ESG purposes, but the stuff that people can bury on page 200 of a financial report where you're like, oh, so it says that this is manufactured in Canada. But really what they do is attach the final piece of their product in Canada and it's actually manufactured in a sweatshop in China okay. and they don't pay wages and they have terrible working conditions and the supply chain could get cut off at any moment. And you're like, that's kind of vital information for me when oh. I'm living in this company. Or even worse, the industry watchdog is funded by the industry. Right. Yeah.
1: (laughs) It's like, okay, that
0: seems like a conflict of interest. Yeah, that's it. Uh, I I can share my hack, which is just the first thing I look at. First thing I always look at is the board of directors. And I look for gender diversity on the board of directors. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, if I look at that board of directors, and it's all old white dudes, (laughs) game over. Like, I don't need to look at the report. Like, I honestly, to goodness, I know what to expect that they just don't, right? And that whereas when I see women, when I see younger people, when I see people of color with diverse backgrounds, that to me is the most obvious sort of like first step. Um, When I did my thesis, I looked at, you know, over 300 different ESG KPIs for linked to financial outperformance. And the one with the strongest correlation, I can't causation, but the strongest correlation to better profitability is gender diversity on the board of directors. Interesting. The companies that had, you know, more diverse boards of directors just make better decisions. I firmly believe that diversity, just like diversification within a portfolio, diversification at the board level, it just to me makes, it's like a no brainer free lunch. And that if a company hasn't at least figured that out, then like, I don't even need to go further. Right. Good point one of the things
1: that I was thinking about and we've kind of covered it a little bit in the for discussion and you brought it up right away at the beginning that you're not necessarily going to get lower returns if you're fully ESG but one of the things that like question I have is for people that do like to track their performance and benchmark their portfolios now you said that the like GEQT does track very closely and they're designed to do it that way but for people that go in and sort of build their own like even using your uh, model portfolios, how would they go about benchmarking their performance against sort of like an average index? Just kind of yeah. think me through that. Didn't we yeah. just record an episode
2: about that? You shouldn't be benchmarking. Yeah, we totally <laughs> did. We absolutely <laughs> did. We just <laughs> talked about this. I'm not doing chances.
0: it,
1: but no, this
2: account, this
1: is not your yeah. question. No, the, just, the question is, is like, cause if I go hundred percent ESG, yeah. How do I know if I'm yeah. performing? It depends on your asset. It
0: depends. Of course, it depends. (laughs) Right. But, like, give me an asset class. Yeah, fair. You know, and if you're telling me it's a 60 40 split and that that's your split, then I can use one of the standard all in one ETFs as a benchmark to give me a ballpark.
1: Okay. But that's what I'm asking, though, is because if I've gone uh, the advanced ESG, so I've removed a lot, then I'm not going to track as closely to the global. Benchmark, right? So I'm just saying is what should I as a DIY investor look for to kind of go, yeah, what I'm holding my 27 slices of global pie
0: is is keeping up. You're looking for correlation. Okay. Okay. So that to me is what I'm looking for. That when global stocks go up, I want my global stocks to go up. When global stocks fall, I want my global stocks to fall. If that's not happening, okay, there's a problem here. So when you chart you know, the different options. They're all gonna track the benchmark. They're all gonna have a high degree of correlation there. It's just that the variation is gonna be higher. Okay. And if it, right? And so really, you know, it's that's, I I would say that the benchmarking is very standard. You can just do it to the standard, you know, as long as your asset allocation is, you know, similar to your benchmark. And you can split it up and you can do global, you know, and stocks and bonds. And, you know, you can do it by geography, whatever. That's fine. Um, You know, to me, like, honestly, if the benchmark I tend to use is like the All Country World Index, if that's in U.S. dollars, because that's just to me, like, it doesn't have the home bias. And, you know, it's just the standard one. Yep. Yeah. And then, you know, all of them are going to have some degree of correlation. But I'll tell you, it's when the green stuff started to really pop post-COVID right when it just really popped and it became a bit of a meme stock where I was seeing it on Reddit and I was seeing people, you know, renewable energy, like in some of those same conversations. Yeah. And all of a sudden I saw like the correlation was there, but like there was a high deviation. Yeah. That's when I was like, Oh shit, like, wait a minute. You know, this might be getting a little bit ahead of itself. Exactly. Right. And I'm not saying don't buy it. And I'm not saying sell it because I don't know when to sell, but what I'm saying is rebalance your portfolio. So if I had, you know, 10% to like, you know, renewable energy and as Tesla, like four X's, six X's, like whatever the hell it did there.
2: It's count's favorite stock. I hate that stock so much. It's unbelievable.
0: And that's fair. (laughs) And, you know, and from an ESG standpoint, (laughs) that's a very controversial stock, right? Because they're doing good on the environmental side, but their social and their governance is terrible. Yeah. Atrocious right? So a lot of people point to that as the SG, but it isn't a lot of these green funds, but yep. like sexy, like renewable energy funds. It's like the top holding. So when that popped and, and Neo, the Chinese car yep. and solar and wind and, you know, all this stuff popped, then, you know, I was like, great. And there's a temptation to like, let that ride and just, you know, like, Oh, it's doing so well. I should put more money into these green energy stocks, but no, I was deliberate. I rebalanced. That means that I did trim my position Good for you. Yeah. Such that now that it falls, okay, great. Now I'm buying more. Yep. Yeah. yeah. You know? So to me, it's just really like, you know, uh, uh, kind of make it part of your plan. That, But it is, you know, I do my whole approach with this doing less evil, doing work good, being cautious is about earning those market rates of return. Might be a little higher, might be a little lower, right? But like in that ballpark, while doing it in a way that A, I feel comfortable with ethically, and be like, I can feel good knowing that I am supporting these things that I do want. You know, what is the world I want to retire into? Yeah. yeah. You know, like one thing I'm seeing with all this FI stuff is that a lot of people are getting to FI and then realizing that life is more than that. Yeah. That it's about happiness and it's about well-being. Yeah. And it's about education and it's about family and it's about all these wonderful things, right? Like, it's we can agree on that. That yeah. this is about more than money. Money is a means to an end. And so, yeah. you know, to be generating that financial well being while at the same time you're like systematically trapping other humans, right? Where like your wealth is like partially based on that, or where you're like degrading ecosystems for future generations to earn returns. Yeah. To earn returns. Yeah. That to me, it's just like, you know, really what I'm trying to do is, is to sleep well at night, knowing that I am looking after my financial future. I'm not really sacrificing anything there, but I'm doing it in a way where at least, you know, when, you know, if, if I have kids and they grow up and, you know, climate change ends up being as big of an issue as scientists are like telling us that it is. I can say that, you know, for damn sure I did everything in my power, you know, to, to make sure that I at least wasn't profiting from that. Well like you said you you vote with your money
1: you vote yes. with your portfolio right for sure yeah I, I think one of the nice things too about the whole fire movement is that we become conscientious of our spending and the i think there's an environmental spin off of of becoming part of the fi and fire movement because you consume less you you're intentionally not wasting money on on all the things that you des- that are just wants that aren't needs you know so I think there's there's a lifestyle and there's a mindset shift and I think esG fits well into the fire space for people that really want to take that sort of next step next level yeah Tim it's been super awesome having you on the show uh, it's been a, a lot of fun actually you're a very knowledgeable guy and really easy to talk to but before we're done we need to pick your brain a little bit you didn't do enough self-promotion yet so far We've got <laughs> a little bit of time left. You you are good investing.com yeah. and you mentioned your CPA. So run us quickly through that. And See, I F- noticed F- on F- there, sorry, CFP, that you have a new, it had the coming soon online yeah. course. So just kind yeah. of give us a little bit more about yourself for the listeners totally. and where they can find you and things like that.
0: So, you know, I created this moniker Sustainable Economist and, you know, probably, you know, close to 10 years ago, I was kind of at a loss for how do I, you know, create a blog and do this. So I turned myself into a Superman and just started writing about these things. Uh, I've learned a thing or two about, um, you know, about branding and about communicating and my target audience. And, you know, so it was a few years ago when I decided to go all in on this and quit my job teaching and do this full time. That's when I rebranded as Good Investing. I just felt it was a lot more clear, a lot more simple. A lot of people are overwhelmed when they first approach this stuff. So I want to create like a safe landing place for the people who are just getting started. So, um, you know, I've been working with clients one-on-one. I have a sliding scale. So people have more money can afford to pay me more money. People have less money can't afford to pay me as much. Um, but what I found is that I'm out of time. That, you know, I'm booked solid for like a month or two months ahead of time. Like there is demand for this. A lot of people are asking these questions. So, you know, uh, I do have my colleague, Daryl Brown, who is working with clients one-on-one as well. But in order to like hire someone and pay them like a good rate, what they deserve to earn, I had to bump up my low end of the sliding scale my hourly rate, and I didn't want to leave people out in in the dust because my mission really is to help as many people as possible. So that's when I got this idea of doing an online course. Uh, We ran a pilot project in February. I was hoping for like 20, 25 people. I had 150 people sign up for it. Wow. We nice. did it, like, over Zoom, like, Tuesday nights, like, you know, just all together synchronous. How did I not get this invite? And, that, and then from there, we um, are on my mailing list. Um, but, that, um, uh, but from there, you know, I got so much feedback. And honestly, like, you know, I, I made a bunch of mistakes. I learned so much. But overwhelmingly, the feedback was like, oh, my God, this is really, really valuable. So we're now taking that and filming it. And Daryl and I are filming the modules. And we're putting it as an on-demand online course through Thinkific, a lovely, you know, West Coast unicorn. They just IPO'd, right? So, you know, I'm using that platform to to launch this on-demand course. Um, It'll probably be ready, you know, my guess is mid-July. And okay. as part of that, we are offering resources. So, you know, I'm building a little community where people can, like, you know, uh, 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 ask questions and talk to each other. Uh, I'm going to be uh, polishing up my model portfolios and putting those on the good investing site. And then I also am going to make my databases available. I kind of was thinking, do I? keep this behind a paywall or something, but I was like, nah, I just want more people doing this. So I'm gonna be publishing my lists of, you know, socially responsible ESG ETFs. I'll probably do like the real simple, like very clean, you know, user-friendly list on the website and then have a link to like the nerdy Google Sheet <laughs> for people that <laughs> want like the, yes. we, you know, <laughs> yeah. this is my whole, but this has been my challenge is, you know, how do I simplify? Yeah. So, you know, really, I'm hoping that this is going to make it really affordable and accessible. And for people who do want to, you know, switch their portfolio to a more sustainable option, but also for people who are getting started for the first time, like a lot of my clients were like hippies and, you know, social justice activists who have never invested before. Yep. So, you know, teaching them about ETFs and getting them set up on Questrade and passive and like understanding how to rebalance a portfolio. Like these are very new concepts for them. So, you know, really focused on that financial education and and I'm really excited about it. I think it's a cool way to scale my business. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hopefully I'm going to make a lot of money from it. But (laughs) at the same time, you know, really my hope is to create a really nice, easy way for people who want to dip their toe in this. You know, they might not want to commit to like moving everything over or for hiring me at a really high rate, you know, but at least they can get the basic understanding, you know, wrap their head around it, have some tools, you know, with these, the ESG scores and it can get confusing pretty quick. So, you know, being able to kind of sort through that and wrap their heads around it and hopefully, you know, learn how to manage their own sustainable portfolio.
1: Yeah, right on. Awesome. Sounds Sounds awesome. Yeah. Goodinvesting.com.
0: And Tim, are you active on social media at all? Do you? I tweet a fair bit. I am on YouTube. I mean, this is what I'm hoping. My problem is like I would tweet or I would YouTube <laughs> and then I'd get clients and then I'd have all these clients and I'd have to meet with them all. <laughs> so now that I can, if I can monetize it with this online course, then, you know, really hoping to do a lot more on my YouTube channel, you know, youtube.com slash good investing. Um, you know, I do tweet uh, at Tim Natch CFP. And, uh, you know, really to me, it's, it's if people have questions, like reach out. That's why I'm here. Like, I really love and your questions today have been amazing. And I think we covered a really broad spectrum, but I'm sure this has opened up a bit of a can of worms. So if people do have more questions, you know, I'm happy to sort of keep the conversation going, happy to, you know, provide tools and resources for people and, you know, really make sure that that they are being intentional about those investment decisions.
1: Well, you realize when this episode airs that we actually have more listeners than CBC has viewers. So you're going to be overwhelmed.
0: Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Sign up for the online course and you know, give me all your feedback.
1: No, it was a true pleasure talking to you, Tim. Thanks so much for being on the FI Garage.
0: Uh, It's an honor. I'm a big fan. I love drinking along with you guys. So, you know, keep up the good work and, uh, you know, uh, invite me back whenever you guys have more questions that, you know, that pop up about these issues.
2: I was going to say, we're going to have to get you back on once I'm sure there's more stuff that's going to pop up that I'm (laughs) going to want to pepper you with. So
0: I I look forward to it.
1: Perfect. We got to get our hands on some of that uh, single mall from out
0: east. (laughs) There we go. Give us give us a quick tasting note. What's it like? Uh, yeah. I mean, for me, it's just really smooth. Like I love it. I'm someone, I don't love those super like peaty scotches, like whiskeys, you know? So to me, it's just, it's really neat, really clean. You know, (laughs) Cape Breton has a very special place in my heart. So it takes me back to my rugby days. Nice. And, um, you know, it's just, it's a good drink. What, what would you liken it to? Like any kind of
1: actual single malts from Scotland? Could you liken it to anything that you've had there? Or is it like a lowland or highland?
0: I'd have. I'm putting you on the I'm spot not, here. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not that good. We're
1: in the optional but, part of the show now. The show is officially over,
0: but it's <laughs> ah, still recording. It's, it's certainly better than what I used to drink as a college student. <laughs> on the East Coast. So, whoa, whoa, no, whoa, I know wait, it's way better than that. What
1: Alberta Premium? Still a pretty good one. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's not.
2: <laughs> it comes in a glass bottle, so I feel like that's enough.
1: Alberta Premium Dark Horse is not terrible. It's it's not a sipper, but it's not terrible. <laughs> well, right. next episode, we'll definitely uh, we'll all switch to uh, some form of whiskey. I like that. All right, boys. Yeah. Good seeing everybody. Thanks again, Tim. We'll talk soon. Right. Farewell.